Hello, and welcome to Stride and Saunter, episode 97. I'm Kip Clark, and joining me today in the studio, we have a returning guest, Mike Jest. Excited to be here. And it's great to have you back, because actually a lot of the audience really enjoyed your previous episode on comedy and storytelling. And so today, we're going to be talking about finding your comedic voice and that process, which I would contend is an individual and anecdotal experience for most people. But maybe that's my first question for you. Do you think there's a universal aspect or formula for finding one's comedic voice? I've been thinking about this a lot recently as someone who's trying to make a career in comedy and does not have a voice as of yet. And what I've sort of settled on is that I don't know if the concept of the voice is real. I think it might be an artificial thing and almost like a safety net that comedians fall back on to think that there is one right way of doing it. A big thought I've been having lately is that stand-up is really just live theater. And it's sort of strange that we never acknowledge that and that comedians don't talk about it because it's nothing but writing and performing a monologue for a live crowd. And I think if comedians conceived of it that way, it might help in their writing and allow them to detach from it maybe in a way that would make it so they wouldn't have to find just one comedic voice and they could write in any style and any voice they wanted. Well, it's interesting that you talk about it being a live performance, and I agree with you. I think a lot of comedians get caught up on or are impeded by the nature of the audience as being a reactive force. And so you have hecklers or you have certain crowds that don't deal well with certain very sensitive jokes. And a lot of comedians, of course, explore sensitive material like gender or race and not always in a way that makes the crowd feel comfortable. So when you talk about the voice being a myth or something that you don't fully believe in, which I find fascinating, would you unpack that a little bit? Well, I liked what you said about comedians thinking of the audience as reactive. And I think maybe a wiser path <laughs> might be interactive, that when you're doing a monologue in theater, you're doing a scene with the audience. You're speaking explicitly to the audience because people don't talk out loud to themselves. And that's what you're doing with the crowd. You're trying to convince them of something. You're trying to get them on your side in the same way a character in a play would. And it can be a character. You know, finding your voice might just be a metaphor for like finding a character that is authentically you and also funny. And if you feel you just need one style of stand-up, like someone like Louis C.K. has certainly found the highest form of his voice. And he's found a way to be totally himself and totally hilarious on stage. Someone like Jerry Seinfeld, I don't know if he ever needed to find a voice because he just writes jokes. You know, he conceives of it like that, like as a joke, like you would write a story, you know, like, like you're writing fiction because you are. And I appreciate the fact that you made that distinction between making jokes, which are perhaps a bit detached from personality and finding a voice, which might be in many ways more integral to one's personality. I'd be really curious to know how you think that relates to vulnerability because I am a huge proponent of vulnerability in any aspect of life. I think it makes our experiences more meaningful and our ability to learn and receive from our environment more fulfilling. To what extent do you think vulnerability plays a role in finding one's voice? And do you think the comedians with the most prominent or authentic voices are those who are also the most vulnerable? Probably. I think we talked about this last time, but vulnerability and specificity, I think, are two huge keys to comedy. And certainly, you'll never be able to connect and interact with an audience if you're not being vulnerable, because people can smell that even on a stage rather than a room. 
people can tell when you're being disingenuous. We hope, you know, that's almost what's scariest about the Cosby thing is that he told stories so well that we believed them. And finding out the truth of that, we found out he was not being vulnerable, you know, maybe ever. But the idea of the voice being detached from the self and detached from the self in a way that can be useful, not only to someone who's a monster like Cosby, but someone like Seinfeld who detached his act from him as a person. And in talking about detachment, another place that my brain goes is the idea that perhaps you could detach yourself so thoroughly you could create a full-fleshed character who in their own way is vulnerable and is a stand-in to a degree through which you find your voice a mechanism or a puppet in some ways. Do you think that for those who are unwilling to be vulnerable, that is an alternative path, finding your voice through a facade or a mask that you create? Sure. Well, Pee Wee Herman just jumped into my mind. I mean, that's a character that I think is fully vulnerable and truthful in this such a weird, specific, idiosyncratic way. And you can tell the truth of something or be truthful in a moment without being what you conceive of as yourself. Because, you know, what is that even? Especially a comedian who plays characters contains multitudes, but we probably all do. I'd be interested to hear how you connect this idea of being vulnerable in comedy to being vulnerable in life. Absolutely. I think comedy, first of all, is a means of exploration, not only self-exploration, but the world we live in. I think that's why you see so many dark and upsetting jokes, because people, however awkwardly, are trying to reconcile the tragedies and atrocities of our world through comedy by disarming essentially what is scary, what is unknown, and what is dangerous or harmful. And for me, vulnerability is important with the people around me because I want to show them my true self and get to know them. I don't think you can really get down to a personal level if you aren't vulnerable. And I would actually say that comedy can work in the reverse in allowing you to be vulnerable, not necessarily that you have to be vulnerable first, but that in telling jokes about personal topics, you might be able to bridge that gap and share information about yourself in a somewhat indirect way, which may be cowardly to some or could be viewed as such. But for me, comedy and vulnerability are both important because they allow me to express myself by employing both in equal measure or in varying degrees. And I also think that comedy has the wonderful property, if it's working well, of making people comfortable. And so vulnerability in a conversational, strict sense is often uncomfortable or strange to a lot of people in our culture, I would say, because we aren't always genuine. There's a lot of small talk. There's a lot of brief conversation in the world we live in. And so I don't know that people expect vulnerability and they might feel confused by it. And I've certainly had moments where I've been too direct and people don't know how to handle it. So comedy is a great way of padding the room, so to speak, and making people feel more comfortable receiving vulnerable information. So if I'm not giving a vulnerable story through a joke, I can at least lay the groundwork with jokes first so that people know I'm not trying to make them uncomfortable or feel strange or sad in any way. And I think that's the relationship between the two. Have you noticed similar or perhaps different things? Well, this made me think of a definition of comedy I've heard, which is that it's the difference between how things are and how things should be. And I think in a comedic sense, vulnerability might be as simple as noticing and pointing out that gap in that these are how things are appearing in the world, but this is my ideal of how they should be. 
And that's the important truth you're telling, I think, with a joke is illuminating that gap in a you know, a moment of clarity for the audience and releasing the tension of that. Because I think usually it's related to something you're afraid of. And there is a tension in that. I like that a lot, especially because if you're vulnerable, you're often more capable of observation. You're more sensitive to the things around you. And that's essential for constructing a good joke and pointing out or detecting an important truth or an underlying aspect of our world about which you can tell a joke. And so I think there's another tie between vulnerability and comedy. I also would like to ask you in terms of finding a voice, as you've said, you're pursuing comedy professionally, what the process has been for your discovery of a comedic voice and when you think it might have started, because people are telling jokes from infancy. And I'd be curious to know what your journey in finding a comedic voice has been like. My journey to find a voice has been more in terms of a journey to find a repeatable process for creating comedy or work in general. It's helped me to simplify it down to the basic building block of connecting and reacting, of telling the truth of a moment, which I've most explicitly applied to improv, where I think for myself, a synonym for yes and, because I think that's what it is, but connect and react is the simplest terms I can conceive of it in. And even if you combine those two, you could maybe say relax. And that that's your primary objective in a scene is to get on the same page as the person you're there with and just react to exactly what they're doing and nothing more, nothing less needs to happen. I agree with you that those are essential principles in discovering the voice or in generally speaking, becoming a better comedian. I'd also like to know, as we all experience trial and error in pursuing any process, what your roadblocks have been, or more broadly speaking, how you've gone about perhaps bumping into the walls as you've started to craft a more precise comedic voice for yourself. Totally. I think ignorance and overcomplication are the biggest obstacles for me, at least which I'm thinking of as the opposite of connecting and reacting. So when something's not truthful, it's because I'm not allowing myself to be vulnerable or I'm not engaging with the truth of what's before me. And when I'm overcomplicating, I'm reacting to something other than the moment that immediately preceded this one. And that's another form of dishonesty because I'm reacting to things that are in my head rather than things that are going on in the world. And all we share are what's going on in the world. So, you know, they feed into each other. If I'm not just reacting, it's going to be impediment to connection. If I'm not connecting, I'm not going to be able to just react because I won't be listening. And when you say ignorance, is it purely ignorance to what you've just said, the stimuli around us, or are there social cues or social trends maybe that you aren't as aware of and that has hindered your ability to make more precise and socially accepted jokes? It's lack of awareness for sure. I don't know if it's impeded my ability to make socially conscious decisions about comedy, but certainly when I'm failing to connect, it's something I'm not understanding about the person in front of me. It's not that they're wrong or that I'm wrong. It's usually, almost always, I find a semantic issue. And by getting more specific and vulnerable with language, you can get there to connection, if that's the goal. And I think relaxation is maybe the most important part of that, which is just, and I think if you're connecting and reacting, you will be relaxed because you'll be comfortable that you understand the person who's in the room with you. 
And that's, I think, when you can do your best work. I think fear is the mind killer. I'm stealing that from somewhere. But I do believe it. I think it's often we're making decisions between fear and love. And hopefully we can get to a place where we can choose love more. Do you feel that that struggle plays into comedy or life for you of making the decision to step away from fear? Definitely. And I think it's especially problematic because to touch on culture again, I would say we live in a culture where fear, at least on a minimal level or in a more subtle way, is ever present. We see it all over the place. People are going to judge us for the clothes that we wear or criticize how we spend our time or with whom we spend it. And people will criticize the schools we go to, the classes we take. There's always points of vulnerability. And I think that people prey upon that fear, for lack of a better term, because it's easy. I think that you're right. We should turn more towards those decisions based in love but it isn't as easy because at the risk of sounding cynical, I think everyone is familiar with what it feels like to be afraid and only a very privileged few know what it feels like to love and to be loved. And that's the world shift that I think needs to take place. I think more people need to genuinely feel that latter emotion and feeling. And I don't think that many of us do. We're very critical creatures, whether it's through nature or nurture. And comedy, I believe, can help bridge that gap and ease those tensions because I think comedy can turn certain decisions of fear into reactions of love. You enjoy being in the room with someone who, if nothing else, can point out how ridiculous some of our fears are because we fear very silly things often. And I'd like to know to what extent your exploration of a comedic voice has helped you explore fears, whether they be yours or on a larger sense, those of the world that we live in or the people around you. Well, I think the more intense the fear of a thing, the greater the potential for comedy is. For every action, you know, there'll be an equal and opposite reaction. That's a physics concept, but it's also a story structure concept. So if you're starting from a place of great fear, you can achieve a place of great love and calm. And only by going to the place of great fear can you go so far to the other extreme because you have to to balance it out. And that's what the best comedians do. I mean, that's what we mean when we say someone like George Carlin or Louis C.K. or Richard Pryor is ballsy. And we wouldn't accept it if it wasn't totally truthful. And we wouldn't let them talk about the things they do. But thank God they can. Because the issues that we're most afraid of are the issues that can be the funniest to us. Because abject fear is funny. The unknowable questions are sort of the funniest. The random chance that governs so much of our lives, or as far as we can tell, is mind-boggling and really inconceivable. And that's funny. It's funny that we think we're self-aware, but only to an extent. And I'm glad you bring up being self-aware, because to me, a voice can never operate on its own. We are, to the best of our ability, creatures being observed and creatures observing. We are social and obviously, as you said, interactive, which is a much better word than reactive that I used. And to that end, I'd like to know how much you think the voice is sculpted by the voices around us, whether they be role models or in the case of live performance like stand-up, to what extent our voice can be its truest self. Because if you're not listening, I would argue you aren't really constructing a voice. You can't only listen to yourself. You have to listen to the full environment and to touch on the principle you brought up earlier of being aware of your stimuli and reacting to them in an honest and vulnerable way. How do you think that 
the people around us help us craft that voice in either critical or supportive ways. Well, I think the people around you are entirely responsible for the development of your voice. I think everything we have or thought we have is only in terms of other people and could only ever be in terms of other people because that's the context of our lives. Experience, I think, is so much of what we conceive of as personality or temperament is just a logical fear or love response to the things that have gone on in their lives. And people are more afraid of some things and more able to be vulnerable and loving in other ways. And those responses are usually pretty logical. I think it's Freud who said that the child is father to the man. And when we talk about overcomplication and reacting to more than the present moment, I think a lot of that comes from defense mechanisms we've built up over life from a point where we couldn't understand everything and drew false conclusions and constructed false narratives about ourselves and life. Then we get to a place where we're older and we've been reacting to things other than the present moment for so long that it can be hard to get back and it can be hard to conceive of what's real even. I'm happy you brought up narratives and touch back on the present moment because time is essential in crafting a voice, I would argue, as something that shifts over time. You use one voice in childhood to express what you need from your superiors and from the people helping you in adolescence to simplify it. You're sculpting your own voice as identity. You're telling people who you are and what you would like to believe, how you would like to enter adulthood. And at around our age, in our early 20s, our voice in a non-comedic sense is what we want to do with our lives or what we think we want to do professionally or in a long-term sense. And so my question to you is how you think your comedic voice has shifted or if you've observed other people's comedic voices shifting as they go through life stages. Certainly. I think clarity is something we're all striving for, clarity of voice. I do think that everyone has a voice just by nature of being alive, you know, especially once you've reached adolescence or some form of early adulthood. You can't help but have an opinion on the world, which is just made up of all your reactions to the little moments that made up your life. And for me specifically, it's been about figuring out what the questions to ask are when you're approaching a piece of comedy. And that gets back to just trying to refine and develop a process for myself whereby I can create work, which is essential if you want to do it for a living, especially. But if the act of creating is what you love the most, then I think the end product will benefit by focusing on the process of it. So if we go back to the idea of a voice, a finding a comedic voice, perhaps what people mean by that is finding a way to express the central juxtaposition of you, of what two totally conflicting ideas you hold in your head simultaneously about yourself, about the world. Maybe the most basic of those being nothing is apparently meaningful, and yet we find so much meaning in it. The idea of being confronted with nothing and having questions, but maybe better is the idea of being confronted with nothingness and having questions about that when really it's sort of unquestionable. The opposite of infinity is equally inconceivable. 
how would you respond to that? And how close are you to finding out a central juxtaposition about yourself? Well, maybe I'm misinterpreting or misunderstanding what you're saying. But for me, the first thought I have when you talk about a simultaneous juxtaposition of opposites is that I am on one hand, a member of humanity, which contains over 7.8 billion members, but I'm simultaneously an individual and inherently weird and unique. I've been through things, however meaningless or difficult or meaningful, that are different from other people's. And talking about criticism earlier, one thing I've often been criticized for is being weird. And if people haven't said it overtly, they've made strange faces or done things to try and normalize me. And I'm not alone there. I don't think I'm the poster child for it. There are a lot of people in our world who are criticized for being abnormal. It's everywhere in the news, in the media. You can find a story, I would contend, daily about someone breaking a mold that society wants them to fit. And so for me, my comedic voice, which is very well blended with my typical voice, is to satirize that and to satirize how silly I find it that we're so uncomfortable with the individual when at our core, the thing that goes to bed each night is the individual. That's what we are. And yet we're so simultaneously afraid of it, but we also champion it in certain celebrities and in those like David Bowie, who passed away earlier this year. We're comfortable with it, but we're never fully okay with it. And so for me, my voice has been, however poorly crafted and rough around the edges, to satirize our disrespect toward weirdness, which is something that always bothers me and will come up in other conversations on this podcast. But that has been essential for me because that's what I see as my identity. My main trait as a person is someone who is comfortable being weird and would like to be more comfortable with it because people for no good reason, in my opinion, continue to be very averse to that very concept. And before we close, do you have any thoughts on that monologue of mine? Well, I think you're touching on what is a fairly ubiquitous fallacy, the concept of self as separate from other people, or maybe more accurately, as separate from perception, that all we have is our perception of the world. And the filter through which we put our experiences, if there is a self, that is us, that is the self. And a key tension in life and something that we're trying to overcome is the fact that all we have is subjective perception, and yet we share so much. And how can we look out from our little perception machines that we live in and connect with the people around us? Where can we find the common ground? between how we're perceiving the world and how can understanding how other people are perceiving it broaden our understanding of it. I really like that. And before we finish this episode, what would you like the audience to think about after hearing this conversation? Just their breathing. I think relaxing is a great first step. I certainly don't know anything, but I have found for myself that when I'm relaxed, I'm happier and I'm kinder to the people around me. And that's where I'm mostly at now, is trying to be in a place where I feel safe and relaxed. I absolutely agree with that. And in relaxation, I would encourage the audience to simply be, because in finding your voice, whether it's comedic or otherwise, you will discover it in your most natural and authentic environments and states of being. And when we try to put on all this artifice or construct anything, often I think that can lead us away from how we really want to express our thoughts and feelings, which gets very philosophical and perhaps too deep for 
this conversation on comedy, but it is a very important factor in our lives. And I'm really glad you were here to talk about it. Thanks for coming on again. Thank you, Kevin. It's very well put. I totally forgot we were talking about comedy. Well, of course, we want this to be a conversation among, not simply a conversation between. So for those of you listening, if you have thoughts, comments, opinions of any kind, we would always love feedback and hope that we get more of it as our conversations continue. So if you would like to reach out, you can find us on Twitter or on Facebook, where if you like our page, you will receive weekly updates when we post new episodes. You can also email us via strideandsauntra at gmail.com. And if you enjoyed this episode, consider subscribing to and reviewing the show, as well as sharing it with someone you think might also enjoy this conversation because it helps to add voices to our discussion, which we would always appreciate. And as always, we thank you very much for listening. And from thought to word and voice to ear, this is Kip Clark signing off.